hello, welcome to our episode 174. This is her Petological Highlights, the podcast about the science of reptiles and amphibians. My name's Tom Major, co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. Hey, hey. And we're going to take a little trip back down to Salamander Avenue this evening. Well, it's evening for me, it's morning for Ben. But yeah, we're going to be talking about salamanders, which is always fun. We haven't done it for a little while. Have we not done it for a little while? No, we, we were literally that. talking it's... about hybrid ones like in the past well, few episodes. Yeah. Really? We're, Two weeks ago. We're in a new a new salamander era and uh, I'm all here for it. They're great slimy yeah. little critters. We are giving them a lot a lot more airtime. Finally. Their time maybe is they now. deserve. No, they, des- they do deserve it for sure. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about a really cool species of salamander. The fire salamander, which is, I think... We were talking about iconic reptiles mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, with the crocodiles, yep. saying, you know, Nile crocodiles, undeniably an iconic Classic. beast yep. of the waterways of Africa. Yep. I would suggest that there are few salamanders, potentially even few amphibians, that are more iconic than the fire salamander. Agreed. Yeah, definitely one of the coolest looking ones. This mixture of bright yellow and black blotches on what is quite a chunky salamander. I think that makes them cool as well. They grow quite big, so up to 25 centimetres long. So, you know, you slap that thing on your forearm. You can see their faces too. Yeah. Yeah. They do have a, they have an undeniable face. Very nice, cute eyes. Something about the shape of their heads. Yeah. Makes them endearing. Well, they have a big smile. They do. They do. And as we'll see, you know, smiling in the face of what you could consider to be quite serious adversity. Potentially for some salamanders, apocalyptic, I suppose, would be not too far from the truth, I think. Yeah, that's deep, but it is true. So, yeah, we'll talk about there. Let's talk about how, do they, what do they do? What do they do? So fire salamanders, they they're living on the forest floor. They're found in Europe and they spend a lot of time underground or in crevices. They come out in spring, particularly at night. They like to hunt small creatures at night, so they'll eat you know, invertebrates, that kind of stuff. Most of the time during the heat of the summer, they'll spend underground. Once autumn comes around, it's time for them to mate. And these things, they have internal fertilization, so they still look like they're mating. You know, the male on top of the female on her back, similar to like how a frog mates. But these guys will be doing it mostly on land. And the male will, after they've sort of been doing their like breeding wrestle, the male will deposit a sperm packet on the floor and then the female picks it up with her cloaca and that's how they mate. And then the embryos will develop inside the female and she will eventually give birth to, they're not fully formed salamanders, they're the aquatic larval phase and she'll lay them into like a slow moving stream and they'll have external gills. You know, they'll look like an axolotl, but very small. And then they'll swim around, do their thing until they eventually metamorphose and yeah, start doing it all over again. Well, let's introduce this paper because the paper, the title of the paper will give people an idea of what this is going to be about. So it's by Erens, Preisler, Spabrek, Bukema, Spitzen van der Sluis, Stark, Ladlaut, Kinnett, Schmidt, Martel, Steinfarts and Pasmans, 2023, Divergent Population Responses Following Salamander Mass Mortalities and Declines Driven by the Emerging Pathogen, Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans. And this was published in Proceedings at the Royal Academy B. A journal we both like because it's got nice colour scheme. We enjoy the typesetting. <laughs> <laughs> so lame. Oh, my God. It's true, though. I love it. So um, these little beauties, they've been weathering a pretty bad storm for like the last 10 years ago. This disease was discovered. So in 2013, this fungal pathogen called Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans, saying it again, glutton for punishment. You're doing very well. B-cell for yeah. sure. 
Thanks. B Sal, yeah. I think, is what we'll operate using from here on out, though. Yes. We'll use B Sal because it's nice and easy. Anyway, B Sal was discovered, and it was actually first discovered from this species of salamander. And it was first noticed because they were dying. And um, the name of this fungus gives a bit of an insight into its nature because the species epithet which as i've already said is salamandra vorans but that means in greek salamandra means salamander and latin vorans just means eating so the name of this species literally means salamander eating and um, it refers to the fact that when they contract this fungus when it starts growing on them it causes a lot of destruction to the skin um and leads to rapid death in almost all infected salamanders in europe it probably came because this is a fungus which originates, uh, it's thought in East Asia, and it's thought that pet salamanders basically travelled across the world, and then either some salamanders were released by people who didn't know better, or they were, you know, maybe someone poured away some water and it came into contact with the wild amphibians, and sure enough, the amphibians which had no previous experience being exposed to this uh, B-sal fungus. Um, are very susceptible to it. And yeah, in European fire salamanders, it causes death in close to 100% of individuals that it infects. And so has caused this mass mortality, massive die-off. And um, yeah, with that threat kind of looming, we're talking about these salamanders on a large scale in Belgium and the Netherlands. So not a million miles away from UK, but they're found in these distinct populations. So, you know, you, you don't have salamanders everywhere. They're kind of in pockets separated by many miles. They have their habitat preferences and their micro habitat sort of preferences, don't they? They do require water. Mm. And I can't imagine they're particularly uh, compatible with European agricultural practices either. No, you wouldn't catch one of these guys in a field. No. They're more woodland sort of. They, yeah, they much prefer woodland, whereas there's lots of nice sort of moist, damp microclimates for them to enjoy. But yeah, in this study, they had populations of fire salamanders which had been exposed to this B-cell fungus in Belgium and Belgium and the Netherlands. It was a mix. Yes, it was a mix. Yeah. yeah. Two in the Netherlands, two in Belgium. Yeah. And so, yeah, essentially they were kind of monitoring the effects that this fungus was having on these populations. And I mean, should we just kind of, they also were fortunate enough to have lots of uninfected populations with which they could compare. Yeah. And, Props to the Flemish Citizen Science Monitoring Network, which did all the salamander surveys in the kind of non-infected areas, and they were able to create population estimates because of that. So, um, yeah, shouts to those volunteers, because that kind of gives the data on the healthy populations so that we can talk about the unhealthy populations in the context of how bad it actually is. Right, because you need something to compare, because otherwise you don't know what the impact of the sort of b-cell presence was it could just be all salamander populations in this area are declining for whatever reason like some something else that isn't b-cell so you you need that comparison to be able to id the b-cell impact exactly yeah and so in this study they had four populations four places with populations of fire salamanders all exposed to this new fungus b-cell of those four populations and you know this only started back in 2013 some of them when the paper was written had only been exposed for like six seven years of those populations three out of four are still there they're still kicking yeah one unfortunately went extinct they did say that that population 
might not have been a natural population. Yeah. It might be a population which humans had kind of recently introduced deliberately. Maybe someone thought it'd be good to have fire salamanders in that place. And it was a small population in a place called Putzberg. But yeah, that one did go extinct after the introduction of the fungus. But the other three natural populations are still going. But that's not really as good as it sounds because numbers are only around 5% on average of pre-fungus levels. So yeah, so only one in 20 on average pre- approximately salamanders will have survived the onslaught of the fungus yeah uh, just as a comparison so they've got this very nice plot sort of comparing the time series of their their ones that they were monitoring that had been infected versus the ones that are not and you're talking these populations starting at like mm, probably 80 plus salamanders per kilometer and that's what the sort of healthy populations are looking like and then at the end you're talking sub 10 sort of two three four salamanders per kilometer the graph underplays how dramatic the declines are despite them looking very dramatic on the graph because we're talking about a logarithmic you know magnitude loss of salamanders uh salamander density yeah at first glance i looked at that and i was like oh it's not that bad they're coming back and i was like oh wait oh wait a second (laughs) yeah logarithmic scale so like this is one and that's a hundred i was like oh no (laughs) no salamanders left anyway yeah pretty savage Three out of four populations, low, low, low numbers. But they're not gone. They're not gone. They're not gone. No. And we are going to talk about some positives because hope dies after the last salamander. Right. And there were some other effects of the fungus. They found that salamanders were on average much smaller in the affected populations. And they think they're not sure exactly why. I would take a slight exception to use, use of... <sighs> there was still overlap. They were on average yeah. smaller, but there was still overlap. There were still large individuals left in the infected populations. Yeah, there were Just still large so. individuals left, but way less. Yeah. Like, chronically, significantly less big ones, right? They were like notable. Y- yes, but there's still overlap, is all I'm getting at. Is I, is I don't want to yeah, give yeah, the yeah. impression that it's not suddenly like, yeah, all yeah, the big yeah. salamanders died <laughs> and the entire population yeah. only exists up to like 120 millimetres or something. It's... Yeah, that's definitely not the case. You're right. right. There is still, you know, salamanders of all sizes. But on the whole, if you were to pick out an average salamander, like it would yes. be a bit smaller. Yes. Yeah. Yes. However, they talk about that and they suggest some possible reason for it would be that the salamanders, obviously this is a fungal disease. It's transmitted mostly, they think, by contact. And so when salamanders are adults, they're going to be mating and they come together then and probably transmit the disease during the mating periods. Males also fight for supremacy in this species. So they do this kind of really slippery wrestling, although it sounds like they wouldn't be good, but they are actually really good at it. They are quite effective. It's kind of a mixture of coiling around the opponent. And then like, there's a bit of flipping over some body slams. I watched some videos (laughs) of it thinking it'd be really frustrating to watch salamanders fight. It was actually like pretty cool. But yeah, this kind of likely spreads it as well. If the males are wrestling, they're going to be touching and then, you know, fungus is there and then, you know, it's not good from there. With salamanders that are young, not breeding, they're potentially less likely to encounter the fungus because of that route. And they're likely not socializing other than that, um, as far as we know. The populations where it's infected, you have a tendency for the average salamander to be below 150 millimetres body size. But... So in the unaffected, it tends to be over 150 millimetres uh, body size. When you compare that to when people observe mating and sort of reproductive activity in salamanders, it tends to be with individuals over that 150 millimetre size. So I am wondering whether 
the sort of remnant populations are in general younger salamanders or they haven't yet got the capacity or sort of or and haven't yet got the capacity to reproduce because they're not quite large enough yeah there's an additional dynamic to the sizes it's not just like it's tied into the behavior is what i'm getting at like you're saying with the wrestling is it just are the big ones more vulnerable because they're expressing sort of that male-male combat stuff, but is it also just big ones are involved in reproductive activities that tend to drive salamanders together and therefore increased exposure? And now we've got almost like zombie populations where they're sitting there, they're younger salamanders, they haven't yet been impacted by the B-Sal because they're not in contact with each other as much, and when they grow up and fall into this 150 mil upwards where these behaviours are observed transmission will sort of kick back up again mm, yeah it could be the case but that being said there are still larger salamanders there so it's, it's not like that population is suggested to be com- completely unproductive uh, right now yeah they also had a look at the genetic diversity of these populations and there was a bit of good news there they didn't detect a strong loss of genetic diversity that as far as they could tell so far yeah, I don't know if people might take that further and maybe discover that if you look in a different way, there is. But their sort of analysis suggests that, you know, there is still a lot of genetic diversity in these populations. So, you know, they could have potential to still adapt. They also kind of unfortunately didn't see any real sign that the salamanders were developing an immunity. They yeah. tested the mucus of salamanders, which were and weren't exposed and they really didn't have much ability to counter the fungus one thing that i thought was really cool is that while the mucus of the salamanders themselves doesn't seem to be able to battle this fungus when it lands on them it just eats them but one thing they mentioned is that it's possible that there might be other microorganisms which live on the salamander or can live on the salamander so part of their um microbiome what's that called uh, microbiome mm-hmm. thank you yeah and it could be that new microorganisms come in, which actually eat the fungus yep. and kind of exploit it as a resource. And they might come along and actually solve the problem sooner than the salamanders can. I don't know how much we know about how the ones in East Asia re- sort of maintain an immunity or like, you know, live alongside this fungus. But yeah, that is a potential source of hope. Maybe some microorganisms going to just ride in and start. Yeah, some sort of like weird symbiotic salamander microbe team up to, to yeah. counter B-cell. That, that would be super cool. And honestly, like if someone needs to go around and squirt the salamanders with a water pistol with a special microbe, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. Sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> Spray them all down. <laughs> but crucially, yeah, these populations are not extinct. They're still persisting. Yes. And so many people care about these salamanders. I mean, like... You know, the strength of the citizen science monitoring network speaks for itself. Yep. I know a lot of people have got skin in this salamander saving game. So, yeah, I would say, although this paper is like kind of chronically depressing and it does very it draw attention to the sort of um, sad facts about these salamanders, yeah. the hope isn't lost by any stretch. No, no. And I think there's also these little hints that there's because it's not entirely sure why some are persisting and some aren't. There are still sort of suggestions that maybe microhabitat stuff could be playing a role as well, which I think plays nicely into your microbiome stuff, is there is another layer of interaction between salamander, fungus, and environment, be that a sort of very close on them bacterial or micro scale, or something a bit broader with a particularly lovely type of vegetation that does well for salamanders and doesn't do very well for B-cell. I mean, 
you can think of any sort of virus or disease, it does better in certain environments, right? So if these salamanders can exist in a gradient, then potentially there are some that will do better and some that will do worse because of how, how B-cell interacts with that. Mm, yep. Here's hoping that soon we'll be able to cover some papers on the recovery of these salamanders. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. They're still there and there's enough of them, hopefully, to build back. Yeah. Cool. Well, should we move on to our species of the bi-week from salamanders to snakes? Let's do it. Okay, so this is a paper by Kane, Tapley, La, and Nagoyan, 2023, a new species of the genus Rhabdophis from the Huang Lian Range, northwest Vietnam. So, yeah, so we're in a mountain in Huang Lian Range, northwest Vietnam here, quite sort of high altitude area of forest. Um, it's sort of like not brand new forest, it's sort of like secondary disturbed forest. But yeah, some. Scientists have described a brand new species of Rhabdophis, which are famous for being the genus which contains snakes which are poisonous and venomous. It's obviously one of those things that people love, especially if they're like quite new to the game. They just found out the difference between poisonous and venomous. They get straight on the internet there and they go and tell everyone, you idiot, you're saying poisonous, you're saying venomous. And then the ones with a little bit more keyboard experience come back and they say, hey, what about Rhabdophis, the one that's poisonous and venomous? And then that conversation happens. Like, well, they're kind of cheating because they're sequestering toad toxins and are they really producing uh, it themselves? Level, level three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's what they're famous for. They're pretty badass. They're lovely snakes, yeah. Really cool, yeah. We were fortunate to see them in Thailand, mm-hmm. weren't we? Um, really awesome. And yeah, this is a brand new species. This one, I would say, is a little bit more of an unassuming in appearance specimen. Yes, less flashy. Some of the others sort of Southeast Asia have very dramatic colour schemes of red, yellow and uh, green in various shapes and patterns. And I think the, the one in Japan is sort of more striking with its markings too. Okay, cool. Yeah, right on. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about this species. They've called it Rhabdophis mongorum, which is, well, they called the common name Mong Kielbach, and they also gave it a Vietnamese name, which I'm not going to try and butcher. But the etymology, if you're wondering what Mong Orum means, it is a patronym for the Mong people who are an ethnic minority in the northwest montane regions of Vietnam, where the snake comes from. And apparently they were very helpful in finding the type specimen of this new species in this province of northwest Vietnam. And as I said, you know, it looks a bit unassuming. It's kind of this sort of solidly grey-brown in the pictures. But in the paper, they describe it as a purplish grey with a distinct iridescence. So yes. I suspect that in the flesh, it's actually pretty damn nice looking. You can s- and iridescence isn't really something that carries over in pictures. It's quite hard to capture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, there's little hints of the purpliness in the sort of photographs of life images is hints hints <laughs> that it could be purpley yeah and this snake i mean it looks like a diurnal snake i'm assuming it's active in the day um i think the one they found was active in the day they suggest it might be quite rare because people do like to smash snakes locally unfortunately there's also pressure from people cutting down the forest and also it's high elevation so you've got a little bit of a climate change risk there but right now it's out there 
uh, it's persisting and they suggest it might have a broader range and also be from neighboring China because this area is right on the border with China mm-hmm. and they actually did some sequencing of an old museum specimen that was pickled in a museum up in China and they found that it was genetically the same as the new species they were describing from Vietnam so that kind of suggests that That's at least news. up until very recently it was had a broader range and probably still does and they also say that this region of northwest Vietnam probably harbors more species of undiscovered reptiles so watch this space yeah about 40 centimeters svl too which I think is kind of classically ah, yeah. Rhabdophis sized. Yeah, yeah, they was about that size. <laughs> the ones that we saw, was it Submaniatus? Yeah, yeah. prime frog eating size, I would suggest. Yeah. Very good. So, yeah, welcome to science. Our brand new species, Rhabdophis mongorum. Any other business, Ben, this week? I do have so many other business. I have a paper out and about in the wild um, in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology about basically it, it's about implementing code review in the sort of scientific... We've called it the scientific workflow, but basically as you're doing science, as you're doing work, there should be points where your code is actively reviewed by uh, constructive and friendly fellows, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's not anything Herp-focused, but... Basically, yes, it's just suggestions and recommendations on how to consider code review and sort of advocate for its importance. Yeah. While also trying not to be like overbearing and scary about it because everybody makes mistakes in codes. It's an inevitability. This isn't like a, we need to set up some sort of code watching squad to make sure there are no mistakes <laughs> in science. That's That's not what it's about. It's more about encouraging people to build a better space for that. Because so much of science is always tied into coding in some fashion, especially in ecology when very few out-of-the-box solutions actually work because we work in messy, complicated, hard-to-control, especially certainly natural environment stuff. Like, it's a mess out there and you tend to need stats and and data manipulations that can account for that, that tend to be bespoke. Yep, it's a complicated old world to try and study, mate. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, congrats to you and the other authors. Like I say, this came across my newsfeed somewhere and I read it before you'd even mentioned it. And uh, yeah, I think the tone's spot on in terms of like, look, coding is hard, but also super important. And like, it's kind of like massively gained traction as something which we all are expected to do as part of our work. And like, the reality is that sometimes you could be working on a project and you may be the only one who knows how to do that or other people are doing things that you don't really necessarily get and having that sort of oversight is probably going to avoid a lot of problems when people try and reanalyze data sets yeah or even just try and use code that you've you've created and stuff it's 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 a uh, sort of interoperability issue as well just mm, making things yeah. readable cool yeah all right wicked yeah we'll put a link to that in the show notes also a link in the show notes we've had a preprint come out so this was a study led by my friend andrea pozzi who is a Bangor master student and andrea is big on his vipers and this study is about our very own venomous species of snake the adder um, this was a conservation genetic study so the goal is to try and find out the genetic health of a bunch of populations of uk adders and long story short it kind of suggested that Adders in the UK are of quite low genetic variability, even though it might have appeared higher 
previously, and they have the genetic signature of snakes, which have undergone a massive population reduction and kind of breaking down into smaller populations, which is consistent with what's kind of happened to adders. You know, they would have been yeah. pretty much UK wide. Yeah. And now we've got humans in the way. Small walls blocking them. Exactly. Yeah. Savage. But, you know, there's some optimism surrounding their future, particularly with genetic rescue. That's something which is kind of mentioned in the paper, moving animals around to broaden the gene pools. And that's kind of that's actually been in the news separately recently. But, you know, we'll discuss all that once it's been peer reviewed. But yeah, you don't want to keep them isolated and promote fresh adder speciation. Well, it can all become balance, isn't it? Super powered, super specific to their microclimate and never, never be forced out. <laughs> It's a real balance, and it honestly depends who you speak to, who what people think about that. Some people are all just like, mix it all up, yeah, genetic variability is the one. And other people are kind of like, well, as you say, we don't know. Outbreeding depression, yeah. Yeah, if you, you know, you might accidentally introduce some genetic components which do, do more harm than good. But anyway, massive effort from Andrea. So yeah, congrats to him to have it at this stage, and we will talk about it in more detail once it comes out. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Cool, good stuff. All right, well... I think I think that's just about it, actually. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. Herbhighlights at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast via the Patreon, patreon.com slash herbhighlights. Thank you to all of those that do. We're on social media. Can't remember if I said that. But yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>